So I finally made it down to Patagonia, and there I was standing on the shores of Lago Argentino, the largest freshwater lake in the country of Argentina. And there in the distance were the Andes, snow and ice covered. In two days, I'd be meeting up with my two guides and 14 other people that I'd not yet met to hike around this region for the next eight days. Down here, we're in cold desert country, flat and rolling terrain that's edged by mountains that come out of the ground so steeply you think Hercules was pounding these rock towers from below with a hammer. But there's also golden grasses and turquoise blue lakes and brown and orange canyons and snow and glaciers, sometimes all within one windswept view. I love, I love how still and remote this place is. I just can't help it. Each day, we tend to start out down here along the rivers and the valleys, but inevitably we reach a part of our path that requires the use of hiking poles. It's a set, set, step, set, step kind of cadence with a complete focus on the ground. And we, I, have to remind myself to look up at the scenery and experience the awe that it gives us every time we do so, no matter where we are. And every day, I have this mantra, layer up and buff up. You know those tubes of cloth we all got used to. You pull them up over your face and your head. Out there, they were essential field gear. They protected me from the cold and the constant wind and the strong Argentine sun. Little did I know that in a few days, that essential gear would be there for me in a completely different context. Then somewhere around day five or six, the whispers started, the field guides started saying things like, there's something going on out there in the world, we're not quite sure what, but the Argentine president is talking about closing the country. This information, this story may as well have been a fa fantasy or fable to me for the impact it had. We were in one of the most remote parts of the world. So we went from there, and I also was thinking about the fact that we had another destination coming up, and it was the Perito Marino Glacier. The Perito Marino is one of the few, if not the only, glacier that's still growing in Argentina. And I remember feeling the cold wind as it came across its surface on my face and hearing these building-sized blocks of ice calving off into the water. And it was a full sensory experience. And it brought that awe back for this place, this region. And then somewhere a little after that, and I'm not sure quite on the timing because it happened so quickly, sure enough, the Argentine government decided they were going to close the national parks. And most of Patagonia is national park. So we had to leave. And I remember feeling this kind of sense of disbelief but acceptance that I've only experienced a few times in my life, and not usually because something good is happening. And I remember being so thankful for the fact that that was true. So we got back to the ranch that we were staying in that night, and that's when another shoe dropped. Sure enough, the Argentine government is closing the borders, and we think it's going to happen at midnight tomorrow. I remember looking out at this plate glass window at one of the most remote places again in the world, all of the scenery that I just described, 
and having a conversation with my travel agent about different routes home, to home as, as countries closed all over the world. It was one of the most bizarre conversations I've ever had in my life. I'd gone from embracing the remoteness and the isolation of this place to wanting to get out for something we thought was caused by people getting together. <laughs> and I realized then that I also had, that I'd been lucky. I'd actually gotten a flight out of Buenos Aires the next morning and then a red eye straight to Miami at 11 p.m., just one hour before the country was supposed to close. But I also realized, well, I thought a little bit about it. I felt a little bit like a Cinderella. What's going to happen if I don't get out at midnight? But I also didn't want to know, so I put that aside. And I'd been, again, I'd been lucky. And I also needed to get out of this ranch house, and I had to get back out into the wild. And I walked around that ranch, 10,000 acres, all by myself, not another soul in sight, and saw, just brought it in again. And I saw these cloud formations that I knew I'd never see in Iowa. And I was so grateful, and the awe came back for that one last time. The next morning, we were in the Patagonia Airport, El Calfante. It is chaos. There's lines upon lines upon lines. And we were lucky again. We had tickets. So we're going to the gate, and I remember looking down and seeing our two guides in these lines, trying to get tickets to back to their respective home countries, neither of which was the US. And I realized they'd helped us before they'd helped themselves. Again, two of the many strangers that are gonna help and save me along this trip. And I never know if they make it back or when. We take off to Buenos Aires and the chaos is cranked up 10, 100 times. There's not a quiet corner that I usually seek out when I travel or something silence anywhere in this place. But I remember my goal, it's to get home, it's to get to Iowa, it's to get to the States. And then I get a text from a family member, what can we do to help? And I respond with nothing, there's nothing. I'll let you know if I make it out. And then after more lines and more waiting, I make it to the gate, and it is full of people just like me. It's probably 10 or 10.30 at night at this point. They're just trying to get home, but it's hushed. It's very, very quiet. And I remember seeing a fellow in a Green Bay Packer shirt across the way, so I make my way over there, and I explain to him that I grew up just an hour and a half, two hours from there, and he's from Wisconsin. And we talk about home in these hushed tones for a while. Nobody's talking about what might happen. And I'm so grateful for the fact that this fellow showed up at exactly the right time that I needed him. And then there's an announcement. The, the, the flight will be delayed till 11.45, 11.50, just 10 or 15 minutes before midnight. <laughs> and I think, man, they're cutting this close. Boy, are they cutting this close. Oh my gosh, they're cutting this close. They ask us to get in line to load. And I start my mental checklist that I usually do when I fly. Except it's holding much more significance this time. Maybe life and death experience. I just don't know. There's the plane, check. There's the pilot and the crew, check. I get, up to the, I get up to the boarding agent, she says, sir, sir, I'm sorry, you can't take that bottle of water on the plane. I've literally just filled it up. I pull it out of my backpack and I'm looking around and I pour it into a plastic bag to lots of disapproving looks, but I know I'm not getting out of this line. <laughs> I buff up for one last time, I think, to get on the plane. And I'm loading my backpack up on the, on the overhead. And I notice that the lady that's going to be on this eight or nine hour flight with me is coughing and coughing and coughing. <laughs> I sit down and she turns to me and she says, 
would you like to see the note I have that says I don't have this disease? <laughs> I said, no, fine, thank you. Very grateful for the fact that she's actually concerned about me, but knowing I'm not gonna delay this flight or find another seat on a full, fl full plane or delay it at all. We're in this together. But the doors haven't closed. It's well past midnight at this point. Why haven't the doors closed? Why haven't the doors closed? My checklist is on hold, then the doors closed. Check. Why aren't they pushing back? Why aren't they pushing back? Well past midnight, why aren't they pushing back? I'm so focused, I, can't, I almost don't feel that slight nudge of this huge plane. It's pushed back. Check. And then it then it's wheels up and we're off to Miami, Miami we hope. And I watch that flight tracker all night and it gets about halfway there and for some reason in my brain I say, oh, well, they can't turn around now or land somewhere else. <laughs> and sure enough, hours later, we land in Miami. There's an announcement from the pilot. You will all be health checked one by one, row by row. I settle back, I've long ago resigned. I'm not making my Chicago O'Hare flight. I only had about 75 minutes to begin with after all the delays and whatnot. But I think to myself, I have all the gear I need. I'll just walk to Des Moines. <laughs> then there's another announcement. Get off the plane as quickly and orderly as possible, and if you see your name in an orange tag on the wall, grab it up, get your luggage, and wave it around. What is this? What was a health check at that point? Hazmat suits came to mind when they said that. So sure enough, there's my name, nap, orange tag, grab it up, get my luggage. I'm in customs and immigration in the long lines there, and I'm waving it around. <laughs> Another stranger comes up to me and takes me up, puts me at the front of the line. I have much, much, much less than an hour to make my Chicago flight. Check, 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 drop your luggage and run. And I'm running through the Miami airport with my backpack on. And I'm one of the last people to get on the flight to Chicago. And it's partially empty. We're going to O'Hare. How is this possible? I land in O'Hare, and I'm not having to move around and avoid people in the terminal, and I can sit by myself. That's right. The country has closed down. <laughs> I get on my Des Moines flight, even emptier. I get into the Des Moines airport, and it's pretty much deserted, as are the roadways. The Iowa, the Iowa I arrived at looked normal, but wasn't quite there. It was different. It was something other than what I'd left. And I realized then that I had to quarantine for two weeks. And friends and colleagues bring me food and drop it on my driveway. And I talk to them from my second floor town home and thank them for doing what they're doing. I didn't know it then, but I know it now, that this trip back from Patagonia, this ups and the downs and the not knowing and not knowing and not knowing, not only taught me how to survive COVID, but how to embraced the changes and the not knowing and not knowing that it actually introduced for the next months and years. It was a great teacher, this trip back through this chaos, this craziness to this calmness and a lesson that I'll be forever grateful for. It also taught me, well, reminded me to always be kind to strangers because you never know who might actually inspire you, save you, or get you home or all of the above all of which had occurred with me. And last but not least, always carry at least one or two buffs with you because you don't know if they're going to be good in the plane or in the field. Thank you.